You're listening to TIP. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I can already feel that this is going to be a great episode because today we are joined by the one and only Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome back on the show. Hey, happy to be back. Always glad to be here. So Lynn, I wanted to talk to you and the audience about global investment opportunities, but I want to talk about inflation first because inflation is just such a tax on, on everything that we do. So I wanted to have that covered as our foundation before we venture into the different investment opportunities that you see in the market. And you recently wrote a great blog post about Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, or TIPS. So let's kick this off, and perhaps you could explain how TIPS work and whether it's a good inflation hatch in today's environment. Yeah, so at the current time, we're seeing a pretty good amount of inflation compared to the historical average over the past couple of decades. And you know, it looks like in certain areas that's that's rolling over, but it's still quite elevated, especially compared to bond yields. And so investors find themselves that you know the risk is that if you hold cash or bonds that are yielding zero percent, one percent, two percent, while inflation is four percent, five percent, six percent, you're getting devalued. You're losing purchasing power. And so one of the one of the ways that investors can deal with that is to buy treasury inflation protected securities or TIPS. And so some countries issue those, uh, you know, as as a small part of their sovereign bond market. Uh, so my article focused on on U.S. tips, and basically what they say is, you know, we'll adjust the bond uh, coupon that you're getting based on inflation levels, official CPI in the United States, uh, and so that that kind of takes away that that risk of inflation. But my whole article focused on the fact that tips can be very useful as a def- as an inflation defense, but they're not perfect. And so obviously, if you have that extra inflation protection built into your bond, there's no free lunch. And so that comes with some costs. And so the main cost is that the TIPS yields are lower than normal treasury bonds. And so in the United States currently, you're getting like a negative 1% yield on your TIPS. So you're getting, you know, you're basically going to earn inflation minus about 1%. It's ironically, you're guaranteed to underperform inflation by owning inflation-protected securities, which sounds terrible, but it's one of those things where you know right now the ten-year Treasury yield is under it's you know it's under one and a half percent, and the inflation expectations by the market are maybe two and a half percent, while inflation is currently five percent, right? Because they're expecting that this is is not going to stay at this level for a very long time, and that the average inflation over the course of the say the ten-year duration of this of this bond will be lower in the in the mid-two range. Now. If that's the case, if the inflation expectations are true, then normal bonds and tips will have about the same return. They basically are, are optimized around kind of you know that break-even point. However, if inflation ends up being higher than those inflation expectations, like if inflation is three percent, four percent, five percent, averaging over the decade, then those tips, despite the fact that they will mildly underperform inflation, will still do better than normal Treasury yields that are you know yielding one and a half percent while inflation's you know. Three, four, five percent. That's the kind of the trade-off that you get by owning tips. Is that you're not guaranteed to keep up with inflation, but you have more protection if inflation runs notably higher than people expect. 
The other big risk of TIPS is that you're reliant on a government statistics for inflation, which include a specific basket of goods with hedonic adjustments, and people can debate endlessly about how accurate that 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 measurement is. I've done work on this, and I, I think it at least mildly understates quote unquote true inflation, but everybody has their own unique inflation basket. And so basically with tips you you risk having your official inflation metric not keep up with real inflation and then you also will mildly underperform even that official metric because of the negative yield. It's always hard whenever you ask questions like so for us investors, which I know I tend to do, because who are us investors? Like how old are we? What's our consumption? What's our income level? What's our debt like there's so many things that go into a discussion about investors in general. So are tips with the flaws that you, that you listed, would you recommend that to any specific type of investor and perhaps not to others? So I think anyone who has bonds in their portfolio at this time, which is not everyone, right? Because younger investors might choose to exclude bonds because of the poor yields and the, and the inflation and to focus on other assets and, and take the higher volatility that comes with that, right? So obviously tips might not be ideal for them. But I think anyone who has bonds in a portfolio could benefit from having a percentage of those bonds be tips. And so I think this is, this is an environment where tips are, I think, useful to have if you own bonds. So given that tips aren't good assets uh, to protect against inflation, at least for many different investors, What's the best way if you want to defend ourselves against inflation? And perhaps I can give you this unreasonable constraint that you can't say Bitcoin. And the reason why I'm saying that, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are saying, oh, Len, we have had her on the show a bunch of times speaking with the president about Bitcoin. Can we talk about that? It's not there's anything wrong with that. We have like a, a bunch of great episodes for that. But we also have a lot of listeners who do not believe in Bitcoin. They don't want to invest in it, more like traditional perhaps stock investors who look into different asset classes than crypto, what can they do? Generally, commodities. And so it's, it's hard to get sustained inflation while commodity prices stay low. Generally, a history of inflation is a history of commodity price inflation. And it's, you know, commodities historically are very poor performing asset class. If you look over, say, a century of data, commodities are one of the worst places to hold money over a long term. Because if you're holding the commodity outright, it doesn't compound. Uh, it just sits there. And if you're holding commodity companies, it generally tends to be lower quality businesses. Now, there are some commodity companies that have done very well, especially in, in energy, because they've been protected by a cartel for decades. But generally, it's not good to have a company who doesn't control the price of their own product. So they, they generally are not the highest quality wide moat businesses that might be appreciated. The caveat there is that during an inflationary decade, commodities generally trounce everything else. Like It's not even close. And so in the 70s, it's pretty much all you would want to own. In the 2000s, you know, commodities and emerging markets, which had a lot of commodity exposure, were the way to go. They, they challenged everything else. And so generally, when you have these inflationary decades, you want to have some commodity exposure. And that ideally, you want to mix it up a little bit so you're not too focused on one commodity. You want to pick the one commodity that maybe doesn't do very well. Historically, oil and gas are the biggest commodities. I mean, that market is bigger than all other commodities combined. So a lot of it comes down to what that's going to do over a given three to five year period. But overall, I think you know one of the best ways to have protection against inflation is to have commodities and commodity companies. And if someone wants to reduce the risk, they can use commodity trend following, which is basically saying you know, you're kind of acknowledging that it's not a great asset class to hold long term and that you generally want to restrict your exposure to them when they're in an upturn because the upturns can be pretty 
violently good, right? Just like explosive gains, but then the downside can be brutal in the opposite direction. So I think some sort of either commodity exposure or commodity-related investments could be commodity trend following, could be commodities, could be commodity equities. They're generally the better way. There's also real estate, if you can get it at appropriate prices, right? Which is harder these days than it was maybe a couple of years ago. But obviously certain certain zip codes, certain regions of the world of your of your country, wherever you might live, can be protection against inflation. And partly it's because with real estate, you can leverage it more than most other asset classes without it being silly, right? You can you can leverage it with a mortgage because it's a stable asset. And so what you're essentially doing is you're you're shorting currency. You're you're shorting the currency you borrowed that in. So if you have a a reasonably priced house, and you have a, a 30-year fixed rate mortgage on it at a rate that's you know at or below the inflation rate, you're shorting a, a depreciating asset and you're going long an appreciating asset. And so that's historically been a, a, a better way, at least better than stocks historically. And then when it comes to stocks, you generally want to focus on ones that can control their cost very well. And so you know people sometimes assume stocks will perform better than bonds and inflation, and that's that's a mixed track record. So obviously, if you have something like hyperinflation, you'd rather own stocks than bonds because bonds will become worthless. Stocks will still be worth something uh, when the dust settles because you still own productive assets. But if you have double-digit inflation, like the United States had in the 70s, stocks can perform about as poorly as bonds can in that environment. It really depends on on some other factors like you know what's happening to their own costs, what's happening to their valuations, what's happening to treasury yields. And But generally, if you do equities other than commodity equities, you generally want to find companies that their revenue is variable, that they have they have decent pricing power, but then also that their costs are rather fixed or controlled. Maybe they have large depreciation write-offs, for example. Those sort of assets, which ironically tend to be some lower quality assets in good times, can actually do pretty well in those inflationary times. Interesting. So then identifying the most attractive asset class, that is just something that constantly changes because circumstances change. For example, gold was relatively cheap in the late 1990s, and the price was less than $300 an ounce. I know it's, it's probably sounds crazy to some people out there, but you know the real rates were high, so opportunity cost for being in gold was just correspondingly seen as high. And, and on top of that, you know, gold was coming off this 20-year bear market, like no one wanted to own it, right? But then the price of gold just exploded in the, in the years after that. And today we have a new situation, not just with gold, but just in, just in general. So if you would have to be ranking different asset classes on how attractive they are, how would that look like? So overall, I think a diverse mix of asset classes is far better than any one asset class, especially in this really uncertain environment where partially whether or not we're going to get inflation or not is based on government decisions, right? Because it's going to come down to their fiscal decisions. And so you have this somewhat binary outcome where you're dependent on variables that are currently unknowable. You kind of know more as you go along. Uh, and so the first thing I would do is diversify, but then I would tilt that towards asset classes that I find to be more attractive. Uh, and so overall, I generally think that high quality commodity producers, you know, I think looking back at the end of this decade, I think this will probably be a commodities decade similar to the 2000s or the 1970s or the 1940s. And so I, I like midstream energy transporters. I like some of the higher quality energy producers, you know, ones that, you know, have low cost production, strong balance sheets, long reserves. I like copper, you know, certain metals, for example, especially related to electrification, I think is an attractive area. They got a little bit overheated earlier this year. They became quite consensus. So whenever they're maybe not on fire is a good time to maybe go into those. I think 
many emerging markets are reasonably attractive for a long term at the current time. That doesn't mean they're going to do well next year or the year after, but I'd be somewhat surprised if emerging markets have another lost decade like they had for the past decade. So they, they had this big period of consolidation. A lot of that was valuations going down and stronger dollar, which tends to go in cycles. A lot of capital is kind of really very much shoved into the United States at the current time. And so overall, I, I find that valuations and overall fundamentals in emerging markets are actually pretty attractive, especially if you go country by country. And so that's generally my approach here. I also, I still like US equities. I'm just, I'm more selective with them because many of them are at very above average valuations, but I still go through US equities and find that in general, growthier stocks are more likely to be overvalued even compared to their history than value stocks. So obviously growth stocks can be more expensive than value stocks. We're always happy to pay up for a better company. But if you look at say how much growth you get for your money, they're a worse deal than they were say three years ago. Whereas value stocks are about the same deal that they were three years ago. And so that, you know, that's varied over time. But overall, I generally like value stocks. And then if I have, if I go into growth stocks, which I still do, I just have a higher hurdle rate. I'm more selective with those and saying, you know, what are, what are my absolute highest conviction growth stocks? Because I'm concerned about maybe the broader valuations in that, in that factor. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. 
In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Let's specifically talk about equities. I know from, from reading your blog, this is just an amazing, absolutely amazing blog. I encourage everyone to, uh, to go read it. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. But what you put on the blog is that you pay attention to, to CAPE and also the market cap to GDP. That's commonly referred to as the Buffett indicator. That's probably how many of our listeners know it. Could you please talk about the methodology of, of both factors, uh, why you look at it, and perhaps also what the empirical evidence suggests for those two factors? So in addition to looking at individual company valuations, I do like to pay attention to broad valuation measures for different markets. And so the most popular one is probably Schiller's CAPE ratio. So that's the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. And the theory there is that instead of just looking at price earnings, earnings can be quite ephemeral, right? So they can go away in recessions and then the stock looks expensive. And then you know earnings can be very high during the peak of the cycle and the stock looks cheap. And so Robert Schiller's approach there says, okay, let's look at a full business cycle of average earnings, either for that company or for the, the stock market as a whole. So the common version takes the last 10 years of earnings, averages them together, inflation adjusts them, and you're comparing current price to that, you know, that more structural earnings average, which, which normally includes a recession or two in the mix, not always, but usually. Um, and so you get this, this smoothed out approach. And historically, that has been a very good indicator for long-term returns, not short-term returns. Cape ratio tells you virtually nothing about what stocks are going to do over a six to 12-month period. But generally, if you look for 10 years, higher Cape ratio periods provide much lower returns than low CAPE ratio periods. And it's challenging because you know you have tax changes, you have changes in, in how corporations operate in terms of, say, share buybacks, for example. And so generally, for a number of reasons, the United States has had higher valuations over the past 25 years than most other periods in, in, in history. And yet they still provide decent returns. There was a good study by Meb Faber a couple years ago, and he's updated it once or twice, where he says, okay, so we noticed that the United States had good returns even when you had high CAPE ratios. However, if you had an approach over those 25 years where you invested in whatever markets had the cheapest CAPE ratio, you did way better. And not every year. Sometimes you would invest in the cheapest markets and they just got cheaper. And then you invest in them again, they got even cheaper. But over the course of, of his, say, 25-year data set last I checked, if you had a habit of buying, say, the 25% cheapest markets around the world, and then updated that every year, you crush the S&P 500, even though there could be a three-year stretch or five-year stretch where you don't. And so generally, valuation matters over the long run, even though it does not matter over the short run. But then you want to say, okay, what if a certain valuation metric has some sort of data artifact in it that is throwing it off or making it unrepresentative? How much faith should I have in one metric? So we can actually say, well, that's one useful metric, but we can, we can go look at a bunch of others. We can look at the average price to sales ratio of the market. 
We can look at the average dividend yield of the market. We can look at sector-adjusted valuations to compare one market to another. A popular one is, is the market cap to GDP ratio is popularized by Warren Buffett. If you add the market capitalizations of all companies in that market together, what, how, how, what percentage of the GDP is that? And you actually can't, unlike the CAPE ratio, you can't really compare that between countries because some markets are just inherently far more financialized than others. But it, you can compare it to its, its history pretty well. And so generally speaking, that follows CAPE ratio pretty closely. And generally during periods of unusually high market cap to GDP, you generally are unlikely to get good penny or forward average returns. Uh, whereas when it's unusually cheap, you're much more likely to get very good forward 10-year returns. And again, it's not guaranteed and it doesn't tell you much about the short term. But when you're combining multiple of these valuation indicators together, it gives you an idea of forward return potential long-term, which by extension, if you do that to multiple markets, can give you an idea of where you should invest or what areas you might want to overweight or underweight without being certain what's going to happen, but with having greater probabilities of, of putting the odds in your favor. One might come to the conclusion that investing globally from a fundamental standpoint is just as, you know, just buy by the cheapest market. What I really like about your research is that you, you go dig deeper than that. Because aside from, from value, which is a great, great starting point for your analysis, but you're also looking at growth, debt, stability, and the currency. So could you please talk to us, why are you using those as your key metric to include a type of value? So the funny thing is that according to data, value might be enough, right? So like using Meb Faber's data, for example, you could ignore everything else and just buy what's cheap. The problem is you have to put faith that that's going to keep working, which it might or might not. We don't know. And it's, you have to give it a long time to know. And so you won't be sure until 10, 15 years later when you had an opportunity, a big opportunity cost if you were wrong. And so what I like to do is I like to say, okay, value is a very, very important component, but there's other things. And so one is that we want to adjust things for growth and, and sector exposure. For example, if you have one country, they have a whole bunch of fast growing tech stocks, and you have another company that's got a, a bunch of kind of lousy businesses and they're cheaper. And you say, well, you know, I'm only going to buy that cheap company. It's like, well, it might be worth paying up. How much more expensive is that other country market compared to this one? Because it is worth paying up if you can get better companies. If you, if you can pay 30% more, but get companies that are twice as good or growing twice as fast, that's worth it. It's good to compare things on a sector by sector basis and to look at various macro factors with those countries. And so, for example, I like to look at in addition to valuation, I like to look at growth. So for example, you generally expect higher valuations out of faster growing countries, right? So higher population growth or more growth sector exposure. And so you should, for example, expect higher growth out of India than Russia, and therefore it can support sustainably for long periods of time, higher equity valuations than Russia. You can also look at debt levels because they, they affect forward growth as well. They also affect the possibility of currency devaluation or other undesirable things that can throw off your investment. That's why you can, you can rank countries based on both public and private debt levels. Then you can look at things like stability. So you know that's, there's different ways to measure that. You can look at there's human rights indices, there's terrorism indices, there's corruption indices, there's you know, how many coup attempts have happened in the past 10, 20 years, for example. And so generally, if you're investing in emerging markets, you're accepting a higher level of these various risks, these lower levels of stability in exchange for higher growth and usually lower valuations. And then the last one would be 
more specific currency metrics. Like, does the country have a current account surplus or a current account deficit? Do they have, you know, especially for emerging markets, do they have very high foreign exchange reserves relative to their GDP, or are they low? Because if they're low and they're running a, a current account deficit, they're at risk of becoming an Argentina or a Turkey, where they have their, their currency loses tons of value and they have little way to defend it. And so I, I look at various currency metrics. And so what I do is I try to, you know, rank countries around the world or at least have a map of kind of what's going on so I can like spot anomalies, areas that might be very risky or that might be very op- opportunistic so that I go in and then qualitatively look around and see what I think. And so I like to maintain that big quantitative metric to find wh- where is a good combination of both quality and price. Whenever you specifically look at the US dollar, I can't help but think, how do you weigh the euro? Because I've seen a lot of different baskets that's compared to, and the, like, the euro always takes up a lot in that basket for obvious reasons, but always makes me wonder, so is the dollar strong? Is the euro weak? Is that actually what we're seeing right now or vice versa? How do you weigh that relationship with the euro whenever you're evaluating the dollar? Well, so the dollar index is, is the go-to one, which, which yeah, the euro is over 50% of that, but you do have the other 40-some percent of it is a basket of other major currencies. And so that's, that's still a pretty useful metric. But then you want to double check that by going in and comparing the dollar to specific currencies, especially major ones. So, you know, how is the dollar compared to the yen? How does the dollar compare to the renminbi? How does it compare to, say, a basket of emerging market currencies? And so that can tell you, is one currency weak or is the other currency strong? And so historically, the dollar, because we are the global reserve currency and we have kind of a more unusual currency situation than other countries, we tend to go through these big cycles of dollar strength and dollar weakness because we're, we're kind of the funding currency for the rest of the world. And so that has implications. And so over the past five, six years, we've been in what I would consider a strong dollar period where the dollar is elevated compared to the majority of other currencies, not necessarily every single currency, but the vast majority of them the dollar has been elevated compared to, say, if you measure it 10 years ago. Now, over the very long run, the dollar has actually gone down, say, over, over almost 50 years of being free floating. The dollar has gone down against a, bas- a basket of major currency comparisons. So, but it's been these, these kind of big three waves. You know, you had a big period of weakness in the 70s, and a huge spike in the 80s, and that rolled over with the Plaza Accord. Then another spike in the late 90s early 2000s, that rolled over. And then ever since around 2015, we've been in another big spike. And so it hasn't gone as high as the previous ones, but we've, we've remained somewhat elevated where, where the dollar is pretty strong. And that has implications. So that that's historically strong dollar environments are very problematic for emerging markets that often have a lot of dollar denominated debt. So that kind of acts as sort of like a quantitative tightening for them. Generally, you have every time the dollar goes through one of those big strengthening cycles, Usually, some emerging markets get absolutely crushed. I mean, in the 80s, it was Latin America. In the late 90s, it was, it was Asia. And this recent cycle, it's been a little bit more varied. So you have Turkey, you have Argentina, and just overall, you just kind of have a, a stagnation worldwide with these high dollar-based debts that have gone up in value. And so a big thing to watch going forward is, is, is this strength of dollars, like, is this cycle of dollar strength ending? Because if so, you probably want to be in things like emerging markets and commodities or are we kind of, you know, going higher or staying at this plateau for a number of years, which can, you know, prolong this cycle and make it so that that maybe emerging markets continue being a lost lost money for, you know, for at least a few more years. Lynn, I would like to transition into talking about 
this uh, wonderful report here, and I'm I'm holding this up to the camera, which clearly works a lot better if you're on YouTube than than if you're you're listening to this as a podcast. But you you give all the markets a score, which I found to be to be really useful, and interesting because you're you're right. Like if, if we if we follow the Med Faber uh, approach, which is very interesting, you know, whenever you do a study, like it it works for all countries aside from from Denmark and and Sweden, and it, those countries are very specific for for different reasons. But there's also a question about accessing. I know that you're you're spoiled in the states. I I live in Denmark, and we don't have the same access. So just because we are like we can see a study like oh the the Filipino market is just great or Colombia whatever it is that's that's great. We can't access that ETF, and so our selection is different generally in Europe. It's just regulated differently in Europe. It's not just in Denmark, uh, but all of the European Union. So. We have different types of access, and if we can find ETF, we can typically only find one. And sometimes those terms can be outrageous. But um, whenever you look across uh, the globe, which countries perform at the top and and which at the bottom in terms of attractiveness? Yeah, so the the ratings change every year, and they're based on those previous metrics I discussed. So some of them have very high ratings in certain areas and very low ratings in other areas, and they average out to say a you know, in some cases, like a medium high rating. And so at the current time, and again, this is not based on what's going to happen in six to 12 months, because it incorporates things like valuation that, that don't tell you almost anything about short-term performance. It's more about what areas are likely to do well over the next, say, five to 10 years versus what areas are at risk of kind of meltdowns or doing very poorly. And so overall, at the current time, Southeast Asia scores pretty well among multiple metrics. Uh, so that would include so you can look at a developed market like Singapore. You can also look at emerging markets like like Malaysia, for example, uh, India, Indonesia. And so overall, that market you know was very very strong. Obviously, decades ago, uh, it had another bout of strength in the 2000s decade. But you know many of those markets have been in kind of a lost decade. But they have generally very high currency fundamentals generally current account surpluses, generally high reserves relative to their GDP, and just overall decent demographics and, and growth trends. On the other side of the coin, I'm also pretty bullish on Russia long-term. They've done very poorly over the past decade, uh, which was a commodity bear market decade. And obviously, Russia is a very commodity-oriented market. And so if you expect decent body performance in the 2020s, then in Russia, generally, you get very high-quality commodity companies that generally have less debt than their Western counterparts and for lower valuations and often longer reserve life. Now, the, the cost for that is you, you put up with some higher degree of uh, political tail risk. You don't have the same rule of laws you have in, in the United States or, or most, most of Europe, but many of those companies are very, very well managed. Many of them are, are managed like their Western peers. I often like to point out that Luke Oil, for example, the Russian energy company, has outperformed most of its Western super major peers over the past 20 years. And it's in large part because they didn't do bad acquisitions or things like that. It was just really well managed. Um, and, and so low debt levels and, and good production and just you know not making any major mistakes uh, and being in large insider ownership, for example. And so overall, I, I kind of like that barbell approach where you know a lot of Southeast Asia is energy importer and as Good growth demographics, and then Russia, you have bad growth demographics and, and cheap, but it's also it's it's it benefits from higher commodity prices. And so I kind of like that barbell approach. South America doesn't currently score as well as some of those regions, but I do think that if you were to get a, a weaker dollar period, 
probably would also see a, a pretty powerful, I think, resumption of growth in those markets. And they, they, they would have a decent shot of moving out of this kind of lost decade that they've experienced. Whenever we, we look at the list, what I really like is that you, know, you give them this all score, uh, you have this moderate opportunity that's more than 20, a better investment opportunity like 23 and above, like Singapore, you had top ranked as 26. And then you have in the United States, 15 points together with France. So, so everything else equal the worst countries to be in. So how do you think about position sizing according to this, to the overall country score? Should you, for instance, still be invested in the States? Uh, should, how much should you invest in, in, in Singapore? And if I could just add a, a third one to that, you've, because you did mention that you did a specific, uh, a few individual picks in the States, but does that just mean like if you're ranked that you shouldn't be indexing at all? This report's kind of meant so that very different types of investors can use it. Right? So some people might want to express that view through ETFs. Some people might want to say, oh, this, this market looks interesting. Let me go see if I can find individual stocks there that might be attractive. And so that's the first caveat that it's going to be used in different ways by different people. I think another thing, obviously, to keep track of is, is uh, where you are. What are your expenses based in, right? So you know, even if, let's say, an American finds that the U.S. market is overvalued, you know, they might not want to put 100% of their assets in other countries because, you know, that now they're taking on currency risk, which could be favorable currency risk. I mean, the foreign currencies could appreciate compared to their home currency. But the point is they're, they're taking on potentially more volatility because they're, now their assets are denominated in a currency that's different than what their expenses are denominated in. And so generally, I think it makes sense for majority of investors to have a home country bias to a certain extent. Obviously, it depends on the size of their market. And if they live in a very small country, it's hard to overweight that too much without having too much concentration risk. But overall, I think generally you start with a home bias, but then you can tilt in certain directions based on where value is. If you if you generally approach with say a value-oriented or a contrarian-oriented mindset, when a market has done very poorly for a decade and when it's cheaper than normal, and you're seeing some sign, if you understand why that happened and you're seeing signs of reversal, it's worth potentially overweighting that market. So I, you know, probably compared to the most Americans, I have more non-American equity exposure than I think the average would. And generally what we've seen over the past decade is the United States outperformed pretty much every other market. And so we see an usually high capital concentration in the United States at the current time. It's a very crowded trade. If you look at the MSCI ACWI index, which is you know one of the broadest indices, the United States market is just under 60% of global market capitalization, which is pretty remarkable. Every other country combined is 40% or 41%. Partially, that's warranted because it's been, you know, the United States benefited from these these huge fang companies, for example. But it has, you know, there's not a lot of more places to get capital to then keep shoving into the United States. It's very everyone's on on one side of the boat. You know, it might be still a couple of stragglers on the other side of the boat, but it's not like we still have tons of people can get on that side of the boat. And so the big risk, I think, is that if everyone's piled into that trade, and then we go through one of these big dollar bear cycles, and the United States market just performs poorly, that everyone's kind of caught off on the wrong side. I mean, there was a brief moment of time in the late 80s where Japan's market capitalization exceeded state's market capitalization. And we all know that that, that went very poorly for everyone involved over the, over the next few decades. And I'm not saying the United States is in that position. Their CAPE ratios were even higher back then. Japanese, they, they had like the highest CAPE ratios on record from what I've seen. So it's not, it's not to that extent, but it is a very crowded position. And so I do think this is a I'm worth, at least for very patient investors, 
buying quality assets outside the United States and having some degree of geographic and currency diversification. Because on a sector by sector basis, you can generally get higher quality companies for lower prices. Like you can get a, say, an apples to apples comparison, you can get a similar bank for a cheaper price. Uh, you can get a similar healthcare company for a cheaper price. You can get a similar tech stock for a cheaper price. And so when you go down that list, generally, I think that there is a lot of opportunity outside of the United States. But in the US, again, we see a larger valuation gap than normal between growth and value. So I think, you know, commodities stocks in the United States are attractive. I think midstream assets are attractive. I think the healthcare sector is reasonably attractive. I still think a number of value-oriented exposures in the US are also attractive. It's just that we're very tilted towards growth at the moment. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. 
Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Lynn, we have a, uh, a huge set of investors here following the podcast who like to look at individual stock picks, foreign stock picks, and typically not always in developed markets. I was curious to hear how we should think about currency exposure. Say that our home currency is the US dollar and the euro, for instance. You mentioned Lugoil. I, I remember looking into that many years ago and like the fundamentals was just so amazing. It was, it was so cheap. So I bought a bunch and the company performed well, but the ruble just plummeted at the same time. So it was a very painful experience. And then as, as well as today, I do think it's, it's tricky to figure out what's the, what's the strength of the currency. Could you, could you talk to us about how do you evaluate that specific uh, currency and, and, and where that might go uh, short, mid or long term? Yeah. So there's, currencies can move for all sorts of reasons. A lot of it's sentiment-based. Right. So around sanctions or perceptions of the country. Now, what's interesting about Russia, they've had some of the biggest disconnects between currency fundamentals and currency performance. And so if you look at countries like Argentina and Turkey, they've had very, very poor currency performance, but this was predictable. And in fact, I, I weighted, you know, Argentina's currency very poorly in, in multiple reports in a row leading up to the, the ongoing weakness that they've experienced. And so, you know, when they exhibit things like low reserves, foreign exchange reserves relative to their either their GDP or their money supply, uh, that's a big warning f- sign for emerging markets because they, they're very reliant on that. You also want to look for current account deficits or trade deficits that, that implies that they're, either their economy is not, not producing well or that their currency is overvalued and it's basically making their exports less competitive and making their imports too strong. And so generally, when you have a structural situation like that, it eventually reverses and can be pretty violent when it reverses. Usually a recession or some sort of catalyst happens, capital moves out of the country, and suddenly that that reverts. It's like you took the escalator up and the elevator down in, in a way. Uh, and so generally for, for currency fundamentals, I want to find countries with current account surpluses, reasonable fiscal debt situations, that have high reserves relative to GDP. Another factor for emerging markets is you specifically want to look at dollar-denominated debt relative to the size of their GDP or relative to the size of their foreign exchange reserves. Because that's the, these emerging markets that have these truly spectacular currency failures, it's usually because they, they owe liabilities in a currency that they can't print, usually dollars. So they borrow from the foreign sector in dollars and so they're actually at risk of nominal default and, and hyperinflation because they have no ability to relieve themselves of those liabilities in the way that a developed developed market can. And so if you look at Turkey, they, they had huge dollar-based debts in their corporate sector. Their government sector has not been very leveraged, but it's specifically in their corporate sector. With Argentina, it's been the reverse where you know they actually, they've gone through this so many times, there's actually not a lot of leverage in their private markets, but their, their government takes on dollar-based debts. And that's been a source of problems multiple times. And that happened with uh, Southeast Asia back in the Asian financial crisis, the late 90s. That happened uh, in, in South America in the 80s, where these emerging markets that get too much dollar-based debts run into problems. And so if you look at Russia, they have one of the highest 
foreign exchange reserves relative to GDP among markets. They have, you know, most years they have a current account surplus. They actually run a very tight fiscal situation. Often they have surpluses. Like most countries, they had a deficit in 2020, but they had, you know, they less so than most others. They were pretty conservative with how they managed that. They also have pretty low dollar denominated debt relative to the size of their economy and relative to their foreign exchange reserves. And so they've actually managed themselves very well financially. I think that they're the head of their central bank is one of the smarter ones out there. And I think she's done a very good job, but they obviously have other issues. So one is, you know, Putin is not very popular on the world stage for, for good reason. They have human rights issues. They have corruption issues. They have sanction issues. And then they're also heavily exposed to commodity prices. So, you know, when oil went crushed last year, obviously the ruble lost a lot of its value, at least temporarily. And going forward, I'm pretty optimistic on the ruble. If you look at most of the fundamental aspects around it, especially if you get an ongoing commodity bull market, that should be pretty good for the currency over time. Another thing you can look at, for example, is the Big Mac index, which, which says, you know, if you, if you do a, a purchasing power parity comparison, that's another way of kind of measuring if currencies are overvalued or undervalued. And by most metrics, the ruble's undervalued, especially when you, again, look at all those other metrics. And so if you were to consider currencies to be like value stocks, right now, the, the ruble would be like an example of a company with like a great balance sheet, super low valuation, but just no one wants to own it at the current time. Then one of the things that you mentioned in your report is that some of the problems of the U.S. don't matter until they matter. I love that phrase in itself, but like the structural deficit that seems to gradually starting to matter. Could you please elaborate more on that? So because the U.S. is the world reserve currency, we have an unusual situation where ever since the 70s specifically, due to specific deals we made with OPEC, most energy worldwide is only priced in dollars. So if, if, if France buys oil from Saudi Arabia, they pay in dollars. What that means is that any country in the world that needs to import oil needs dollars. And so that has made it so that essentially US props up the value of the dollar. So it makes our exports less competitive and it, makes our imp- it gives us more importing power. And so for the United States, the downside for us is that we, we started running these massive structural trade deficits that they just never close. They just, it just pretty much keeps getting bigger over time. And that supplies the rest of the world with dollars. And those countries then take those dollars and it filters up to the central banks and the, and the, you know, the sovereign wealth funds. And then they reinvest those dollars. And a lot of that goes back into US markets. And so they, they buy our bonds, they buy our stocks, they buy our real estate, which sounds good. It, you know, it sounds, you, know, you want the rest of the world investing in your country. But the, you know, the downside is that it means that our net international investment position keeps deteriorating. Basically, the foreign sector owns a larger and larger percent of our productive assets. It's like we're becoming kind of a nation of renters as the foreign sector increasingly owns our most valuable things, our land, our companies, their creditors to our government. And so this cycle has been in place for, you know, you can call it about 45 years now. And there's been counter rallies where other markets do better. Like, so the 80s, you had Japan do very well. In the 2000s, you had emerging markets do very well. But this has been a very strong period of performance for U.S. assets, somewhat at the cost of, of say, the U.S. industrial base and the U.S. blue-collar workers. So we, we've kind of run in this big engine of trade deficits to get recycled back into our capital markets, which are very good for those of us that own assets. But we're starting to see signs of that reversing. So for the longest time, oil was only priced in dollars. Now we see Russia pricing it in euros which is important because they're one of the biggest exporter of, of oil. They also have you know, enough military protection that there's nothing we can do about that as from the United States perspective. 
China is, you know, they're doing trade with Russia and Europe's doing trade with Russia increasingly in, in euros rather than dollars. And so that's more currency diversification. And, and we're starting to see, for example, Saudi Arabia is still pricing their oil in dollars. But as we see maybe tensions between Saudi Arabia and the United States, as we see that now China is the biggest customer of Saudi Arabia, that situation could potentially change over time. And so overall, this you know, system has probably run its course. The rest of the world is finding it you know, restrictive. And Americans, especially those didn't benefit from the huge appreciation in capital markets, are also finding it rather restrictive. And so I think, you know, for a variety of kind of just mathematical reasons and geopolitical reasons, that is probably going to change over the next decade or so. But it's, it's one of those things that it's got a very strong network effect and takes a lot of time to change. And so we're used to this big trend of, say, bond yields going down, United States running these big trade deficits, the rest of the world shoving that capital back into U.S. equity markets. But I think that, you know, as you go forward, that could start to look pretty different. And that, you know, if that does start to look different, if that starts to turn, generally foreign markets could have a big catch-up period, similar to what I would describe in the, in the 2000s decade, where going into the dot-com bubble, US outperformed everything else, you had a strong dollar. But then when that reversed, US equity markets did poorly for a while. And you know, once, the, once the dust settled, you had a huge boom in emerging markets and commodities. What do you think that the Chinese game plan here is in, in terms of currencies? Like, Whenever you see this increase in in trade that's been settled in euros, is that where it's going? Is it more like an intermediary step into you know the whole China's increasing power, one belt, one road, being the most important trading partner for, for more and more countries now than, than the States and have been for some time? Not necessarily just in volume, but, but number of, of countries. That sounded like a leading question. But like, is that the, the Chinese plan? Like, If you have to put a horizon on uh, like 10 years, decades, centuries, is the whole euro play right now just an intermediary step? I think so. China's long-term goal is that it wants to be self-sufficient and powerful. And in this current framework, you know, it's still reliant on the dollar in many ways. And because as we discussed before, at least until very recently, you know, most, most energy pricing, most commodity pricing globally was dollars. And the United States likes that because we can sanction any country that doesn't play ball. We can, we can cut them off from the dollar-based system, and that makes it very hard for them to secure the things that they need to get. And for China, they are a huge export nation in terms of, of manufactured goods, they're, and they're also good with technology uh, in recent years. Their big Achilles heel is that they're a huge energy importer and commodities importer broadly. And so in order to make sure they get enough energy, get enough food, they have to ensure that they can have commodity exposure. And so partially the Belt and Road Initiative is to you know, make sure they have access to infrastructure and reserves in those different countries that they can can get those commodities that they need. Two, they want to be able to diversify the ways that they acquire them. So they, they don't want to be exclusively reliant on the dollar like they used to be in order to get those. The first step is that it just includes diversification. So dollars and euros, if in the worst case scenario, their dollar access gets shut off, they still have the euro route that they can go through. And so Russia will still sell them oil and euros, even if both of them were cut off from the dollar-based system. So there's that. Longer term, I mean, obviously, China is interested in, in launching its central bank digital currency. And so that can potentially reduce the friction of using its currency with some of its trading partners. And so there's no indication that China wants to have the same sort of global reach as the United States has had, both militarily and with its currency. But it certainly wants regional sovereignty. Like It wants to have control over its own region, 
and it wants to not have any sort of foreign power be able to cut itself off from the financial system. And so we've actually been in a weird case where, you know, for most of this 45-year history of the of the petrodollar system, the United States has been the largest commodity importer and it was in our currency. Now we have this weird situation where China is the largest commodity importer in many cases. They're, they're using the second biggest commodity importer's currency to do it. They have a pretty strong incentive to diversify the currencies and then ideally in the long run for them to use their own currency as much as possible. Not that other countries will necessarily use their currency, but that China will be able to use it with some of their trading partners, at least. A lot of Europeans and Americans, uh, whenever they think developing markets, they're thinking India and China. Like There's just so many interesting narratives, not just the, you know, the size of the population, especially India has an attractive demographic outlook, a lot more than, than, than China has. If you had to compare India and China, which of the two countries are most attractive for investors and why? I think it depends on the time frame. In longer term, I think India has more opportunity. With the, with the bloodbath we've seen in Chinese equities this year, combined with rather strong Indian equity growth, I think China is a more interesting contrarian play, right? So, you know, th- this, I could have had a very different answer if I was asked maybe a year ago, whereas now I'd actually maybe lean a little bit more towards China than I normally would have. But basically, the difference is that India has stronger demographics. And so their population is expected to overtake China's quite soon. And because, you know, India didn't do the one child policy that China did. And so they, they have a, a younger population on average and a faster growing population. So they have that going for them. Two, a large part of China's growth over the past decade has been from leverage. And so they're about as leveraged as the United States is now. And it's in slightly different areas. And so, for example, China has less leverage on the sovereign level than most developed countries. And they have kind of moderate leverage on the household level, but their corporate sector has had a very large debt bubble, particularly in the real estate area. And we're seeing some of the negative implications of that play out now with, say, Evergrande risking of defaulting. Uh, and so we're going to see how far that goes, that they seem to be finally addressing some of that and letting that play out. And it remains to be seen how much contagion that will have. But essentially, if you were to compare China and India over the past decade, they both grew very quickly. But China used leverage, partially to grow at that speed, whereas India did that rather unleveraged. They did not build up large amounts of leverage on any of their public or private platforms to have that growth. It was more organic growth. The other difference is that you know China has a higher per capita GDP at this point. Decades ago, they were closer. So in some ways, China's model has been more successful in the sense that they've been able to that top-down organizational structure has been able to, for better or worse, accelerate certain things. And the leverage has increased average standard of living in China compared to India. But the question, of course, opens up is how sustainable that is, right? So with India, you have a, a democracy. Uh, obviously, there's still human rights issues there, but it is, a, it is a democracy. And you have better demographics. And so that's generally how I would sum up those two differences between those, those, those two countries. Also, China has been very export-driven whereas India is, is much less export-driven. It's more somewhat separate from the rest of the world. Obviously, it's, it's very strong in software, so it exports software services, and, and it does, you know, it imports and exports various things. But overall, it's, it's less tied in with the global economy than China is. Lynn, thank you for sharing your, your framework for global opportunities. Could you talk to us about how investors could build his or her own personalized global portfolio? What should we we consider, how do we do it in practice? I start out with a, a big diverse mix, right? So I, I have 
companies from my country, which is the United States. I have foreign companies. And because you know, over the very long term, equities are big compounder wealth. Generally, equities or real estate are the ways we compound wealth over decades. And then you just you can look around for certain count counterbalances, right? So there might be environments where you want bonds in your portfolio, and then you can choose, you know, what types of bonds are most attractive? Do you want them as a big deflation hedge, or do you want to have them as dry powder to, to rebalance into more equities? And then if you're in a decade where there's a reasonable chance of inflation and it being a commodities decade, one of the most powerful things is to have some sort of commodity exposure. Could be commodities themselves, could be commodities equities, could be commodity trend following, where you ensure that you're you're most exposed in the upside and limiting your downside because it's a it's a more boom bust lower quality area than than other types of equities. And so overall, I think it's about having that starting from that like diverse starting point and then tilting into areas where you think there's more value. So it could be certain countries, it could be certain factors, it could be say commodities versus tech, for example, if you if you think it's being more inflationary, more kind of emerging market based. And then wherever someone has kind of expertise, right? So or that they follow markets closely. So I, I incorporate, say, Bitcoin into a portfolio where obviously not everybody would, and the position size is what manages the risk there. And so when you add together equities, some bonds, some real estate, commodities, and some digital assets, generally, I think that's a very attractive way to kind of just preserve and grow wealth over the long term, even though, of course, you're going to encounter periods of volatility. Fantastic. Well, Lynn, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're, you're super busy and and. Before we start recording, you're also saying that you're you're going overseas. A bunch of stuff are happening right now, so I will I'll let you go. But before I do, I would like to give you the opportunity to give a handoff to any of your resources to our audience. I appreciate that. I'm at lindalton.com for people that want to uh, follow my work. I have I have free newsletters, free articles. I also have a low cost research service, and I'm active on Twitter at lindaltoncontact. Fantastic, Lynn. And I can only endorse. I've done that throughout this episode, but. I absolutely love reading anything that Lynn is putting out there. So make sure to uh, to go to lynnalton.com. It's, uh, it's always worth reading or go to a Twitter profile. Lynn, thank you so much for yet again making time for the Investors Podcast. I hope we can do this again soon. Happy to. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.